The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Once upon a time, vegan food was what you could concoct from one of a few recipe books. And now, some vegan-friendly brands are getting to be almost as well-known as Golden Arches. What's it like to be in this business if you're not yet a household name? Well, we're going to find that out today on the Main Street Vegan live radio show and subsequent podcast. Welcome to those hearing this program in either format. It is an honor to have you with us. I'm Victoria Moran, your host. What a pleasure to be here with you. After the break, we'll be talking about milk from macadamia nuts and also about regenerative farming, friend to vegans or not so much, and also about the palm oil conundrum with Milkadamia CEO Jim Richards. And right now, it is my pleasure to introduce one of the co-founders of No Bull Burger, Elizabeth Raymond. I learned about No Bull from a listener who's also a friend, and he is a very committed whole food plant-based gentleman who was so excited about finding frozen burgers with no oil and no compromises that he just said, you have to talk to these people. And I'm so glad I did. I also agreed to try the burgers. But before I could even take a bite, my husband was saying, these are my new favorites. So Elizabeth is coming to us today from Charlottesville, where she was born and raised. And after getting a master's degree, she ventured into the entrepreneur world with her mother and sister. And together they founded no Bull Burger, which produces and wholesales veggie burgers throughout the country. She also loves music, yoga, and learning. Bonus points if it's all at the same time. <laughs> Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you, Victoria. It's my honor to be here with you today. Well, it's wonderful to be with you. It, it's so interesting that just because people find this way of life and this way of eating 
doesn't really mean that we ought to have other things in common and get along really well, but so often we do. I love that. So welcome to the program and uh, just jump right in with how this all started for you. How did you get from a psychology and education background into being a burgerpreneur? <laughs> burgerpreneur, that's a, that's a good one. Um, yeah, well, it, it really um, all starts back to mom. Um, my mom, Chrisanne, who's our founder and president, she um, was a chef for many, many years and really had come up with this recipe decades and decades ago before veggie burgers were a thing like they are now. And um, she had just really been, you know, kind of at the forefront of um, healthy eating and whole food and just was really um, in tune to the food we put into our body. And she had a natural talent for cooking and had come up with this recipe, the original recipe, based off of my grandma's lentil soup recipe. And she kind of put her spin onto it into um, a healthier burger. She was looking for something to feed our, our, my family. I'm, I'm one of five kids. And so she had a lot of mouths to feed. And, um, you know, it really started with that of um, her, her kind of creating this as for our family to enjoy. And over the years, as other veggie burgers would come to the market, my sisters and I would always go to the store and buy them and dissect them and compare them. And they just didn't compare to what mom was making for us at home. And so that kind of put the question on the back of our minds of, you know, hey, maybe maybe we should do something with this. We really need to, to get this out there because we knew that there wasn't anything out there like it with what we were doing. Fascinating. So I see that your your trademark is no bull burger, the true veggie burger. What does that mean? Right. So, you know, I love I love the name. Um, shout out to my little brother who came up with the name Noble Burger. It actually has a triple entendre. So mm-hmm. I don't know if your listeners can come up with all three meanings before I tell you. But um, we really feel like it says it in the name, and that's kind of why we developed the tagline as well is of the true veggie burger because that's all it is. Um, we say we're, we're no bull in it, um, just no bull about it as far as super clean, real food ingredients, and then also noble, N-O-B-L-E. You know, it's a good thing for you, for your body, and for our planet. Um, so with with that and the true veggie burger, we really say that we're not trying to be a meat imitator, um, like a lot of what you see out there, in that we're just a whole food, real food product, just lentils and whole grains and vegetables um, in, in our various flavors. And we're just, you know, we say call it what it is, and that we're just we're just a true vegetable burger with um, those real food, clean ingredients. And you seem to have a kind of secret ingredient. You were telling me that it was the caramelized onion that makes it yeah. so unique because these are oil-free burgers, yeah, which so- that's a difficult concept. It is. And I know it's something that, um, you know, consumers look for in, in that. Um, and I, I, I love that you think of the onions as a, as a secret ingredient. And I'll, I'll run with that um, in that the caramelized onions are um, in the base of all of our flavors. So out of out of the five flavors we carry, 
Um, we have an original, a savory mushroom, uh, a spicy Italian, a curry, and a sun-dried tomato. And the base of all of those um, are an organic whole, uh, lentil. We have we use organic brown rice and a, a caramelized onion um, kind of just as the base and then the various vegetables and spices depending on the flavor. Well, you've aced it. So <laughs> congratulations. Oh now, I, I do want to ask you a kind of devil's advocate question. I mean, we've already established that you have a really clean recipe, a really clean product for practically anybody on any iteration of, of plant-based diet. But I sense that you're still going to get that, but it's processed argument. So how do you respond to that? Right. Um, so, you know, we say that, you know, basically, if you look at our ingredients, everything in there is from the earth, everything in there, you know, your, your grandmother is going to know what it is. It, it, it really is a true farm to, to burger recipe versus, you know, some of our competition that might be, um, you know, made in a lab or um, highly processed ingredients. And we, we say that, you know, this is, you could go out and get all of our ingredients and, and make it yourself. There's, there's, uh, it's very simple as far as the ingredients we use. Um, but we do all the hard work for you. And, and my mom has really perfected that recipe. Um, but we, we kind of feel like we're, we're the least processed out of any of our, our um, out of the competition available in that it's just those whole food ingredients. Um, there's, there's no isolates, there's no fillers, there's no preservatives. It's just whole food. So if somebody is listening to this and thinking, oh, I want to do that. I have my grandmother's recipe for, you know, whatever it is. But if you're not someone who knows the food business, it seems so overwhelming. So do you have any advice for people thinking of entering the plant-based food world? Right. Well, we've been doing this for, we're almost, you know, in our ninth year now um, and really going at it um, for the last four, I would say. And, you know, it still seems to be very overwhelming for us as we grow and as we're growing into new regions and, um, you know, really trying to get that awareness out there. Um, but I would say, you know, it definitely takes a certain kind of grit and hustle that you'll need um, to push through. And we had a great start with our, our local farmers markets. And that was such a wonderful way for us to start small and test out our market and test out the flavors and, and, and really do that test marketing with our consumers. Um, and we just kind of, you know, our story is unique in our own in that we really just, um, we started little by little and you, you feel like you have this whole mountain in front of you with trying to, you know, scale and get it national. Um, but we really just knew that our product was really exceptional and we knew that there wasn't anything out there like it. And we, that kind of has gotten us to where we are today. And we just kind of pushed through, um, rather than trying to move the whole mountain at once, just kind of take it pebble by pebble and, and tackle it as it comes, um, it's definitely gotten more competition as the plant-based category has seemed to explode in the last few years. Um, so it really is important that you have a product that's filling a, a niche somewhere um, and that has that competitive edge and is really solving a problem for consumers. 
which I think you're serving the whole food plant-based community. You're serving the people who are looking for um, low saturated fat and salt and, and all of those kinds of things. Plus it's really good. So it also, I think, you know, what helps uh, people with kids and (laughs) people with spouses. When we first started this, you know, we kind of were like, okay, you know, vegans, vegetarians, yoga moms, those are, that's our target. And honestly, as the years have, have moved on and as plant-based has become more mainstream, um, you know, we really realize our consumers are, are not just the vegans and the health conscious, um, eaters. It's, it's the whole gamut of, you know, even moving into the flexitarians and people who are really just trying to incorporate more plant-based foods in their diets because they see the benefits for their health reasons or for the, for the planet. And so it really has broadened, um, the, the array of people that we're serving and, you know, our motto here at home where we have, um, being the foodies that we are is that it's got to taste good. And no matter mm-hmm. how healthy it is, if it, if it tastes like the cardboard box that it came in, mm-hmm. we don't eat it. So, um, flavor was a big part of that. And I, and I, I reiterate that because that's a huge, um, you know, importance for us and our, and our company is that we feel like we don't, you don't, you shouldn't have to compromise between flavor and quality ingredients. Mm. So products out there you do. Yeah. So if if somebody wants to try the Noble Burger, uh, I got mine at Whole Foods here in New York City. What, what's your distribution like around the country? We're we're, we're pretty regional in that we're primarily, um, we're in the Whole Foods in the mid-Atlantic, um, Kroger, Wegmans, Mom's Organic. We can also find us the Whole Foods in the um, Northeast in the New York region. Um, we also have serve some of the natural grocers um, and a lot of the independent health food stores. But our website, which I'll share with you at the end, is um, has a full locator where all you can locate all of our retail stores, and we also okay. online. Well, let's just share the website now, just in case we run out of time, noblburger.com. And speaking of indies, I want to give a shout out to the Westerly Market, uh, a midtown west side New York City, because that's where our listener discovered your burgers. So uh, I I love the Ma and Pa, and I know that with COVID, it's probably more difficult than it's ever been to to keep keep things going, but it's so important. So on, on the business side, how does a smaller company stay positive and make a place for itself when you're up against these giants, like beyond an impossible that just dominate the media? That's a great question. And, you know, I think so much of it, um, is, has to do with our determination and our mindset and our belief in our product and, and what our family is doing. Um, for with this better for you food. Um, I think that, you know, for us specifically with no bull burger, I know that we really see how we um, are kind of a different subset of that category in veggie burger um, compared to some of these bigger brands that are coming in with the, the meat like products. Um, but bottom line is we really believe in what we're doing. We believe that we have something unique and again, filling that niche for that whole food, real food, veggie burger. And, um, I think it just has to do with 
you know, our determination in getting this out there to, to more consumers. Um, and, and, you know, we have, we don't, we have that kind of don't quit attitude because we, we know that this really needs, um, to be, to be out there for more consumers. And I think we've benefited from this awareness that, brands like Beyond Meat and Impossible have brought to the category. I mean, we no longer have to explain to people what veggie burgers are and you can, you can now go to fast food restaurants and there's a vegan option for most. And, um, that definitely is, um, opened the awareness for brands like ours. It does make it very competitive and, and challenging to, to really compete. Um, but we feel like we just kind of, you know, we're, we have that competitive advantage in, and we really do have this exceptional product. And so it, it takes a lot of, like I was saying earlier, a lot of, a lot of grit, a lot of hustle and um, determination and believing that, you know, we believe in, in this, this product and this brand and um, getting it out there to more, well, to more consumers. How does it work? You know, I think we all eat food. <laughs> we go to the grocery store and we buy what's there. But I don't think we really understand how it got there. So so can you just give us a little walk through from your kitchen to when you moved into a commercial kitchen, then the farmer's market, you just kind of the steps, because I know there are people out there dreaming of doing what you're doing with a cookie or a lasagna or a something. Yeah. And, you know, you have to start somewhere. And I honestly think that we didn't know how we didn't know the steps involved to getting to where we were today. Um, and so much of this was a learning process for my mom, my sister and I, in that, you know, we didn't, um, have a background in this industry or or really know how the process went and just kind of learn, learned as we went. Um, but you know, for us, we, like I was mentioning, we kind of started at our local farmer's markets with, um, just getting a booth there and, um, really being able to test market there, um, with our consumers. We also had some restaurant connections and, um, got into some menus locally there. And, um, once we started seeing, you know, a little bit of growth there, we were started approaching our local retailer stores and just kind of hitting the pavement with samples. And, um, you know, as each time went on, we'd, we'd learn more about what retail buyers are looking for or what kind of presentation material you need to have. Um, and so little by little, we got better and better at that. And, um, we just were kind of, it was more of a lifestyle business in the, those first few years, um, where we were just kind of seeing where it would go. And once we started seeing the traction and once we started seeing more and more demand from, retailers and consumers, um, we kind of realized, okay, like we've got something here and we really, we really, um, wanted to push it more. And so that's kind of when we kind of got a little more serious about our, our, you know, projections for our business and where we wanted to take it and, um, you know, looking for the, that strategic partnership with others who've been in this industry before, who can help kind of help us scale to that next level. Um, but it really was a, a very slow, organic store-by-store growth in the beginning, and and then when we started seeing traction catch on and the demand catch on, you know, we started scaling a lot faster, and and that's when we would get planogrammed for a few regions of Whole Foods or get into these um, bigger chain stores. But with that comes a lot of red tape, um, a lot of a lot of. Um, finagling through your promotions and marketing and all of that, which has been such a learning experience for us. 
Fascinating. So, so what is it, Elizabeth, in your opinion, about the burger? I mean, it's so American and yet beloved around the world. You know, it, it's it's this thing that most of the time you put some bread around and some condiments and you pick it up. Why, why is it so lovable in, in every iteration, which is great for veganism because the vegan ones are as lovable as we used to think the other ones were. Right. You know, it is, and it's so true where it is kind of this iconic American food. And I think, you know, just to go back to what I was talking about in the beginning, and that was a big part of with my mom as a vegetarian, she was craving that burger experience, but didn't want to, you know, have wanted it in a healthier way. And I think um, there's just something so satisfying with just the, all of those flavor profiles you get, whether, you know, regardless of your toppings. Um, but I think, you know, the American diet has definitely you see how it's influenced most of the world now. And I think um, it just kind of not only is it this like iconic, you know, uh, sandwich burger that we can have and enjoy at cookouts and barbecues, um, but it's just, you know, there's so many different ways you can enjoy it. And um, I think it's really taken, taken the, you know, at least in our category, um, taken it by storm as far as that, that, that center of the protein that we are all looking for in our meals, too. Yeah. Um, it's been interesting to see how it's, it's exploded so much over the last few years. It, it's a terrific thing. I think that if, if all animal products were in the place today where we see, well, actually, both of our um, topics for this program, where we see the burger and the liquid drinkable milk, yeah. um, we would really be <laughs> getting this thing done in time to save the planet and everything. So, Elizabeth, I want to ask you something kind of personal, and okay. that is about what it's like to be in business with family. You know, the holidays are coming and a lot of people are like, oh my God, I have to spend a day with my mom and my sister. You're in business with your mom and your sister. Every day, every day. <laughs> it's, you know, they say you have to be a little crazy to work with your family. And I think that that's kind of true. But uh, I think, you know, Fortunately for our family, we kind of, I grew up in the environment of, of working with mom um, through her catering company before we had done Noble Burger. And, you know, I, I would be lying to you if I said it was all just rainbows and butterflies. And I think it's been such um, a learning experience for us. And, you know, obviously it's prevented its challenges and how you work together and dividing roles up and, um, you know, kind of just delegating and, and things like that. But ultimately I believe our family has been able to, to, to push through and, and kind of see the success because we, you know, we, we have those core values of, in our business of, of family and, um, you know, our, our whys as to why we're wanting to do this both for our family personally and for the health and wellness of our community and those out there who can benefit from eating this too. Um, so it's, you know, it's been challenging, but at the, at the end of the day, 
there's no one else who I'd want to be doing this side by side with. And to take a minute and, you know, step back and look to see how far we've come, even though we know we have so far to go, um, to be able to do that alongside my mom and, and my sister and to do it for my family um, is, is really priceless. And it, it really is part of, of why we want, we want to do this and, and keep pushing through. Ah, and and that's all the more reason to, I mean, just like I like to patronize Ma and Pa stores when I get the chance. I mean, obviously, (laughs) during COVID, I'm not doing such a great job of that. But I think even companies, you know, I think about your company and and who you are. So so it will feel extra good. The next time I buy Noble Burger, which will be soon. So find them at nobleburger.com or on Facebook or Instagram or um, other places at No Bull Burger. And just in our last couple of minutes, I do want to talk about your interest in yoga. I am so jazzed about yoga right now, even though I have been doing it since I was a teenager. I was just telling you before we went on that I just took yoga teacher training. You asked me the school. It's called the Yoga Veda um, School of Yoga. They combine, you know, yoga and Ayurveda. Uh, and they're just wonderful, wonderful people. And I feel I got a superb education. So what does yoga give to your life? Oh, man, there's so many. I think I picked up yoga kind of in the middle of of this stressful job of running, you know, helping running this business. And for me, I responded so well to the connection of of mind, body, spirit. Um, I think that, you know, with yoga, it's it provides that opportunity to take so many things that you learn on the mat, whether it's with balance or pose or your drishki and focusing and apply it to, to real life things and to apply it to when you get off balance in life or when things knock you off track, how quickly are you getting back to your focus? How quickly are you getting back to, to that, that, that breath? And so for me, not only has it you know, such a, a great physical benefit from it, but so much of the the mental and spiritual aspects of it that I really connected to that I find, you know, show up in my day-to-day job, um, connecting with people all the time, um, especially in the health and wellness industry. I really feel like it's all connected. And um, that's kind of why I think I've, I've clung to it so much, um, is just that connection of, of mind, body, spirit, and being able to apply it on the mat as well as off the mat. And I think it ought to be required for entrepreneurs because people <laughs> don't, don't know, I, I don't think, most people know unless maybe their parents were in business for themselves, what it's like to be a, in a small business where the buck literally stops here and you have to have all these skills, those that you're good at and those that you're not. <laughs> so a little yoga could help a lot. Thank you so, so very much, Elizabeth Noble Burger. Everybody try these out. They're really, really good. And they're good for you, too. So stay with us. We're going to get some milk right out of a whole bunch of macadamia nuts. Wait through these messages, learn something there, and we will then be back. Thank you.
You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. And welcome back. Welcome, in fact, to our thrilling second half. There's so many fascinating things to talk about with Jim Richards of Milkadamia. But before I do that, let me invite you to text the word vegan to 55444. And when you do that, you'll get our little immunity guide plus soul-soothing tips, which I need to update again because so many things keep changing as we learn better how to take care of ourselves. And you'll also, by texting the word vegan to 55444, get the weekly Main Street Vegan blog and also the every now and then Main Street Vegan newsletter with recipes and offers and intriguing tidbits. And also, if you would like to up your game and become a certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator, please visit MainStreetVegan.net and click on Academy. Many of our graduates have started vegan businesses. Others are coaching and consulting and working for animal rights organizations. And just about all would tell you that Main Street Vegan Academy changed their lives. It's pretty special. We have a Zoom program coming up in January. If you're interested, there is a 20% tuition break for podcast listeners. So just put POD for podcast in the discount box. And I am now overjoyed because this has taken a while to set up. We've waited a while for this day to get here to introduce the Chicago-based CEO of Gin Dilly Beverages and Milkadamia, the brand that melds an artisanal business aesthetic and nutritional desire with eco-imperatives. The company produces a full line of macadamia nut-based milks, creamers and butters now jim richards has had a life like oh my goodness he ran a health food company in new zealand he owned an amphibious tour bucks he manufactured breakfast cereal he introduced soy milk to new england and he built and ran a peanut butter factory on papua new guinea and today he's on the main street vegan show welcome jim richards well, thank you for that welcome. It's good to be here, Victoria. What a life. You're such a renaissance adventurer. Life is meant to be an adventure, isn't it? You know, it is. And it's interesting to me now that I think about it, some of the most adventurous people I have ever known are Australians and New Zealanders. Why do you think that is? Um, look, the Australians and New Zealand are both reasonably isolated from sort of the rest of the world to some degree 
And so we have to create our own interesting things to do, and we get used to doing that. But the other part of it is, again, because they're isolated, you know, it seems like um, all the cool stuff is happening on the other side of the world. And we like to travel and um, discover those things. Mm. The interesting thing is mostly we find out that we had it all right there at home at the beginning. You know, what, what we really wanted and what we really needed was, was already there. But when you're young and um, the world seems so huge and so full of um, opportunity and adventure, you can't wait to get out and try. If you feel like I did, that you're, that you're in a tiny country at the bottom of the world and, you know, you come from a tiny part of that tiny country, um, you, you just want to get out and inhale what's going on, get, get to be part of it. <laughs> So what what you've come to now is is making milk from from a nut that nobody else uh, thought to exploit. So tell us about milkadamia. Uh, milk, milkadamia actually came. I was working in a macadamia company. Um, we were making macadamia cooking oil, macadamia skincare oil, and we also had two factories, and we also had a what's called a macadamia processing plant, but really it just takes the shells off macadamias and then sorts them into various sizes. So because we were doing that, at, um, you know, macadamias weren't that um, exotic to us. That was our daily daily event. But also what we, what we were doing as you process macadamias, and we processed, you know, many, many thousands of tonnes of them each year, there was um, bits break off, there's chips and there's discoloured, and odd shapen, you know, misshapen macadamias that were being sold off as um, stock feed, actually. And it was a waste stream that seemed a real waste. You know, this is perfectly good food. Um, it was just the wrong size or shape or colour, um, otherwise perfectly good. And so we, um, over a few years, we just grew increasingly um, frustrated at, at what seemed like waste, and we looked for a way to use it. It couldn't be used in its current form, so we had to grind it up into a paste, and then from that paste came milkadamia, or macadamia milk at that time. We we thought up the name milkadamia a little later. But, um, yeah, that's how it happened. It was actually um, stopping waste is why we got to where we are. And it's it's delightful. I've tried one version, and I feel like I, I keep talking about all my husband's favorite foods today. But as I was telling you before we went on, he, he's somebody who who had been like a no fat uh, kind of milk drinker in his dairy days, and he's just like, I want this forevermore. But you have so many kinds. Tell us about some of the various types and products. We, well, we have um, a, a range of macadamia milks. So we have two that are, we call them barista milks. They're, their actual name is latte da, but because um, <laughs> they're for lattes, you know. And those we have those two baristas, a sweetened and an unsweetened. And then we have what we used to call original, um, but that is so unoriginal. You know, you look at the milks, everyone's got an original, um, and it just felt call ours original as well as we originally did was lazy so we now call that we now call that one just lightly sweetened because there's it you know everyone's got an original and you've got too many originals then that's not original so well we have a lightly sweetened we have a um vanilla and we have an unsweetened vanilla um 
we have we have a range of coffee creamers as well, and beyond that, we have macadamia oil that we are just launching. We are launching a um, a pure macadamia oil, and we're launching another one with umami flavour, and, and that's specifically to help people who are new to um, plant-based diets. There's there's a taste, a savoury taste that they miss, and um, that's in that that is umami that taste, and it's in our new macadamia oil spray that isn't even in the stores yet. We've received our very first order today. It's heading to HEB in Texas, and Whole Foods will be having it early next year. But that's that's designed to help people um, to cook interesting and tasty um, food right off the bat because you know mm. we're getting more and more people step away oh not just step away from meat eating and step into um, a plant based um, diet and it can be a bit of a challenge right at the very beginning to um, to understand how and um, you know what to cook that's going to be that's going to be interesting both to you and to your family so that that is part of our normal process milkadamia we made with raw um, macadamias nearly every other nut milk they roast the nuts first um, and that denatures all the oils and and you know destroys some of the good parts um, that are in a, in a raw nut but we ended up making it with raw macadamias because it tasted closer to dairy than um, it did once we once we roasted it you know there's people coming from dairy into non-dairy there's quite a big taste hurdle so we tried to lower that hurdle because our goal is the, the thing that um, that kind of moves us and we would love to do we, we want to stop the growth of the dairy industry and if we had got into competing with other nut milks it doesn't do that what we want to do is compete with with milk we want to bring make it easy for people to come across and if we can if we can as a first step stop the growth that means there's no more tropical forest being cut down for soy for dairy cows there's no more tropical forest being cut down for you know dairy farms that would be a, if we can do that first you know we've got bigger goals beyond that but if we could achieve that or be part of achieving that that's kind of what gets us up out of bed every day and makes us excited Mm, it's a very worthwhile thing to, to get up for. So you talk a lot about this fallacy that people need to be consuming dairy milk. So what do you say and how come? Um, well, look, it's easy. There's whole um, cultures, human cultures, who have risen from, um, well, who have risen and prospered without a single dairy cow near them. Um, it is. It just isn't true that human beings need to drink um, dairy milk. There's, there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that. In fact, there's lots of evidence that suggests um, it increases your chance of cancer, increases your chance of a whole range of sickness and disease. And it doesn't really add anything. We're, we're now seeing um, athletes, you know, people who are endurance athletes, people who are strength athletes, um, increasing their athletic ability through stopping drinking dairy and yet you know we've been told for generations and generations you have to have a glass a day or your you know your hips will break your bones will turn to um, crumbs and and all of that is not true it's been a you know probably a 50-year scare campaign that is that is pretty disgraceful really so we just want to bring yes. some truth to it That's, that is the best thing um, shine a light on some of these these things because they don't stand up to the light Yes, for sure. So let's talk about 
a couple of interesting interests that you have. So the first one, when your publicist was saying, and, and, and he's interested in regenerative farming, and oh, my face just fell. It's like, I just saw that that Woody Allen movie, Kiss the Ground, and, and the implication there was, I mean, regenerative farming sounded so great until they implied that you had to graze cattle or it wouldn't work. So please help. Um, you, you don't have to graze cattle for regenerative farming. But having said that, um, you know, if you look at the Great Plains here in the US, you know, when um, Europeans arrived, there was something like 16 inches of amazing topsoil there. And that had been an interaction between um, all manner of plants and grasses and um, annuals and biannuals growing and, and, you know, the whole life cycle which included being grazed by huge herds of buffalo. So in that circumstance, um, you can see why they're saying you need them both. It did build up over the millennia um, a beautiful amount of topsoil that has really been the foundation of America's strength and, and wealth is, is our topsoil, as it, as it is in all countries. However, um, regenerative farming can happen without having to have um, animals as part of the process. One of the interesting things on our macadamia farm, where we, we practiced regenerative farming, we, we, we practiced it before we'd ever heard that word, and we used to call it gentle farming. Um, we didn't have a word for what we did. We just we didn't want to rip up the ground. We didn't want to be aggressive with anything. We wanted to um, try and run tractors and anything that tore the ground apart as little as possible um, because our farmer had an understanding that um, for a healthy tree it had to be sitting in healthy soil with all the micronutrients and all the microorganisms and all their networks intact and if you break it up um, that has to start again and the earth is, is much the poorer for it so we started with um, some of the main principles so we we didn't plow and that's kind of easy if you have an orchard you don't normally do a lot of ploughing in an orchard anyway. Um, we, when we mowed our orchard, what you have to do with a macadamia orchard, because the macadamias, when they ripen, they drop on the ground. That's You pick them up from the ground when they're in their hard shell. Um, but you, we would always leave what we called mohawk strips in the middle for all the pollinators. We didn't use honeybees. We used native bees that don't give you honey, but they do do a fantastic job of pollinating. And they're actually the bees that used to pollinate the macadamia trees when they were you know when they were just rain, rainforest trees so it's all works together we use owls for rodent control if you have um, a nutrient rich source like macadamias you do attract rodents is just that hand and glove thing um, and so most macadamia farms were using all manner of uh, poisons um, we switched over to we had some fox terriers who did a pretty good job during the day we had there's owls there at night that we've built um, nesting boxes for one pair of nesting owls will eat three and a half thousand rodents in a nesting season so they do a pretty good job of of keeping that clean we then started using wasps tiny little wasps um that deal with the lacewing as a as an issue on macadamia plantations the lacewing can um can really reduce the crop that you get but um, by by putting tiny little wasps in there that's their natural enemy that kept them away so 
we started just doing natural things, fewer sprays. Um, but once we heard about regenerative farming, that took us up to another level. Um, we we now know, you know, to to never let the soil be bare. Make sure there's always something growing there. To um, to do some rotational things between our trees, so we're not just growing the same crops all all the time. But regenerative farming is really um, has a bunch of benefits. It, it improves the soil, and improved soil is what we desperately need on Earth right now. Um, it stops it disappearing, which is another thing we desperately need to have happen. It um, sequesters a lot of CO2. Um, the the amount of activity and life in healthy soil is astounding. There's billions of microorganisms in a single teaspoon. And there's also kilometers of these tiny little filaments. And, and that's in a teaspoon. It just staggers me how um, how much activity there is in the top layers of soil when it isn't overheated, when it's not left bare, when it's not exposed to sun and rain and cold and, and heat and all the things that will that will cook these. Um, so that's what we do with with uh, regenerative farming, and uh, and an amazing side benefit is that once you do that, the food is much more nutrient dense, and so um, all the, all those little elements that are in the soil, you know, the soil is the the source of all vitality and life on Earth. It starts there, um, even in the sea. It, you know, it starts in the soil. And so looking after our soil is looking after the planet, looking after ourselves. Um, and for us as a business, having beautiful, healthy soil means that we have beautiful, healthy trees and nutrient-dense nuts. And we don't work half as hard as other farmers because we're not trying to control and govern a lot of things that, that we really shouldn't be trying to control and govern. All we're doing is trying to make sure that the soil is in a, in a state where it can do what it does best when left alone. Well, that is beautiful, and that is the best explanation of regenerative farming I have ever heard. So thank you so much. I only pray that um, people start doing it in, in large numbers. So now I need to ask you about something else that's controversial and utterly fascinating, and that is palm oil. So give us the scoop. The um... You know how one I can't remember the guy's name, but there was someone who said when you when you um, try and pick out anything in the universe, it's connected to everything else. And our um, opposition to palm oil is connected to everything else we do too. You know, we we go to all this trouble to make a um, beautiful food. Um, we are planting trees all the time, and and. Macadamias are a native Australian rainforest tree and where we're planting our trees was cut down when Europeans first arrived. They cleared the land and they made dairy farms of all things and now we are um, replanting those with, with a tree from the forest that was originally there, which is a cool thing to do. And it makes you fall in love with trees, which sounds like a, a, a kind of a crazy thing, but walking between down our rows of um, macadamia trees in sun-warmed Australia is one of the most pleasurable things that you'll ever do. And there's something sort of ancient and and um, a combination of human endeavour and nature working together, these these columns of trees that you can walk between in the sun. It's glorious. But anyway, 
but to us it's like poetry, I guess. Um, when you've done that, and then you hear that there is um, massive vandalism, criminal activity, I don't know what to call it. I, I, in fact, you know, if I start, my words get too strong. The um, What's going on in tropical forests for palm oil is an act of eco-vandalism and absolute insanity right now. They're, they're clearing, and by clearing, it often just means cutting down and burning. Um, I think it is about 300 football fields a minute. Um, mm. huge, oh, my God. Huge swathes of land are being cleared for palm oil. And it's because there's billions of dollars of palm oil being sold. But <clears throat> when you clear a rainforest, you don't, you know, the trees, seeing the trees go, um, which are part of the lungs of our planet, seeing that disappear is a tragedy, and it and it's a it's a painful tragedy. But I, but you know, as you mentioned earlier, I lived for four years in Papua New Guinea, and um, Papua New Guinea is one of those countries where there's people still stepping literally out of the Stone Age, um, walking through dense forest, and then they come across a road, something they've never seen, and it really is only one main road there. Um, that that kind of activity doesn't happen in many places. And so I got an understanding of what the forest means to them. You know, it, it is their larder. It is their home. It's, you know, almost their mother. The, the forest is everything. They can live, um, build their house, create their gardens, raise their families, all in the in the tropical forest because it is such an abundant um, ecosystem. When... Um, outside interests come in and clear it all because they want to grow palm oil. They've taken a lot more than the trees. They've taken those those people's ten, twenty thousand years of history. They have taken um, that much knowledge knowledge of of what to eat when, you know, where to go when uh, a particular tree is fruiting, where to go when you're looking for for something else. You know, it's knowledge, human knowledge that is just lost. But those people lose everything. Um, and then what they're offered in return, sometimes, some of them, not even all of them, is low-paying, go-nowhere um, jobs on these plantations. So the whole process is destroy one of the most beautiful um, things we have on Earth, these tropical forests, turn it into, um, first of all, just bare land and then grow palm oil on it. And there's... One of the largest palm oil com companies in the world has just been banned from bringing any of their product into the U.S. And the U.S. has only done that 40 times since 1933. So it's, it's a rare thing that they ban a company, but they've banned them for their employment practices, child slavery, um, indentured people who have no choice, withholding of documents, withholding of payment. Um, it is horrendous. What goes on in palm oil is something we should all be deeply ashamed of that we're allowing it to happen now. It's the kind of thing that if, if you were asked, you know, would you support this kind of behaviour, we would all say, absolutely not. I would do anything to ensure that doesn't go on in the world anymore. 50% of the grocery items in our stores have got palm oil. And there's things that everyone knows, knows about and talks about that are full of palm oil. And palm oil, um, we don't need it. You know, it was a West African... Um, palm tree that was fairly limited in, in its range and most of humanity for most of the whole human occasion didn't even know palm oil existed it is hardly an essential 
and yet it is it is killing off masses of rainforest and um, robbing some of the most vulnerable and innocent people on the planet of their livelihoods and their history. It's awful. I, I um, it is, in fact, it is so awful. It is hard to talk about it without sounding like you're exaggerating and that you're making some of this up. It is, it's an astonishing thing to me. I, and I, many, many years ago, when I lived in Papua New Guinea, um, I used to fly up and down the country for um, to do my sales, which I was selling um, health foods and um, other foods up and down the country. And in, in one of my flight paths, there was, we flew past this tropical island that, that was beauty itself, you know, white, white beaches and, the, and then the, the forest in behind that and big corals reaching out into the sea from it, just beautiful. And I watched um, over the four years that I was there that forest get cleared. Um, they punched out holes all through the coral to put some wharfs there. Um, I saw oil slicks. I saw um, you know big fires as they burnt off the forest, and and it was a palm oil plantation being being made. And you really knew nothing about palm oil at the time. And I remember thinking how sad that was. That you know, it's it's really sad that we have to do that to such a beautiful place. I wonder why it couldn't have been done somewhere else. And it it you know it was hard to see. Only just recently, a couple of years ago, I opened a uh, magazine and here was this article about extolling the virtues of palm oil. And it was saying how um, there were some people making sustainable palm oil. And here is these images of a sustainable palm oil plantation. And it was the very one. Um, and almost taken from the same angle that I used to see it. And it, you know, there, I know, because I, I saw it happening, um, and this was like 20 years ago I saw it happening, what what destruction took place there. Now it doesn't look bad. You know, there's these rows of palm, palms and fairly neat rows and it's in a grid pattern and there's roads between and, there's, you know, there's, there's big um, ponds there where they, that are actually very, very um, poison, but... You know, they don't look too bad when you take a photo. It looks, you know, and they say this is sustainable palm. This is an example of sustainable palm oil. Wow. That made me I am, mad. I am so, so, so sorry to cut you off. Our, our time is up, and <laughs> uh, I could talk to you half the day, so I do hope you will grace us with your presence again in the wonderful year of 2021. In the meantime, everybody, milkadamia.com milkadamia on facebook and instagram thank you so much jim richards for enlightening us about these very important issues everybody you feel enlightened so let's act on this god bless you eat your veggies Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We talk to the animals, and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast, hosted by the three of us myself, Julie Heert, Karen Dendy Smith, and Meredith Tollison. 
we will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.